Welcome to Tree Hugger Radio. I'm Jacob Gordon. And I'm Brian Merchant. This week, from the pages of Tree Hugger, new fracking rules have come down the pike from the EPA after a long last phased in between now and 2015. The EPA says this will make up nearly 95% reductions in the more than 11,000 natural gas wells that will be built each year. Also in fracking news, Vermont just got a step closer to banning fracking altogether. Even though Vermont's not a real big fracking state, back in January, the Vermont House Water Resources Committee voted to approve a three-year ban on fracking in the state. Now, the Vermont Senate has voted to ban fracking as well. It's not officially law yet, but it would, if it goes into effect, be the first state to issue a ban like that. In India, they are about to throw the switch on what will be Asia's largest solar plant, Gujarat Solar Park, which will be out in the desert, good place to put it, will produce 600 megawatts of power. And it's part of India's plan to roll out a 20 gigawatt solar energy system nationwide over the next 10 years. Cleantech spending, however, in the U.S., not doing quite so well. Not looking so good. A new report from the Breakthrough Institute, the Brookings Institution, and the World Resources Institute has outlined the the decline of spending on uh, U.S. clean tech endeavors, and it is falling off of a cliff. If you get a chance, check out this report. There's graphs that make the whole thing clear, and you can see that by 2014, if policy is unchanged... U.S. is set to all but abandon cleantech spending on this very important endeavor, getting more solar and wind out, uh, both in research and in deployment. Uh, it's it's going to be uh, curtains for, for cleantech unless we, we get our act together. And we've got a story a little later in the show on offshore wind investing, both in the U.K. and in the U.S., which is pretty exciting stuff. Elon Musk who you guys will know as the founder of Tesla Motors, the electric sports car company. Did you and see uh, Revenge of the Electric Car? I did. He was a star in that. He was uh, probably the most compelling figure there, huh? Yeah. he. There's a very interesting picture of him painted in that film, which I guess you can watch on Hulu for free now. I definitely suggest. Yeah, definitely check that out. You see this guy is really driven, very kind of a type A, kind of he's totally... He pretty much has a nervous breakdown in the course of the film. Well, yeah, I mean, they run out of funding a bunch of times. He's putting up his personal fortune from uh, from PayPal. He he made his fortune in, uh, I think it was PayPal. Yeah, he got rich it, as a co-founder of PayPal, and all his cash went into went into Tesla, and you know, some close calls. But check it out. Well, now he's got a. Different plans for his fortune. He has shown up on a list of billionaires who have pledged to give the majority of their money away. So as a co-founder of PayPal, and he's also the founder of Tesla, chairman of SolarCity, and president of SpaceX, the uh, space travel <laughs> startup, he's on the list for Giving Pledge, which is uh, billionaires like Mark Zuckerberg, Michael Bloomberg, Bill and Melinda Gates, George Lucas, T. Boone Pickens, who have pledged to give away the bulk of their fortunes to charitable causes. Now, I wish we were talking about Alec Baldwin. We actually, I will mention Alec Baldwin later. But in other Alec news, <laughs> yeah, uh, Alec, yeah, you guys might have heard of Alec, which is the American Legislative Exchange Council, which uh, the New York Times calls the stealth business lobbyist. 
And what it does is it offers corporations a seat at the table when state policymakers uh, draft legislation. And so at a, at a state level, not not in Washington, D.C., not not at Congress, but they, they facilitate these exchanges between, you know, head honchos at Coke and Pepsi and whatever, all these various different uh, different corporations. And they let them sit down at the table with state level politicians and they uh, hash out what they call model bills that uh, can be then introduced at uh, in state legislatures across the country. So, you know, the, the most famous one is the Stand Your Ground law, which the critics say kind of enabled the killing of Trayvon Martin uh, in Florida, because Florida passed this the Stand Your Ground law on the back of model legislation that Alec had come up with. And a bunch of campaigners like Color for Change and uh, Common Cause have really kind of stood up and have been hitting big corporations hard for their involvement in this. And as a result, Alex said, "Okay, well, we'll get out of the the gun law game and we'll get out of the voter ID law game. Another contentious issue uh, that it was kind of uh, lobbying around. But kind of in the background behind all this noise is the fact that Alec has doubled down in effect on other laws in in areas like education and in, in the environment. And what Alec wants to do with the environment is roll back any uh, laws that protect the environment or that promote renewable energy because the Alec co-sponsors are always the kind of the, the bigger you know, vested interests like uh, like ExxonMobil or Coke Industries. So right now, uh, we have two different reports, one from ProPublica and one from Dsmogblog that outlines their latest uh, endeavors, and they're, they're nasty. One of them is to roll back the renewable energy mandates that have been picked up in states across the country. 29 different states now have what are called renewable energy portfolios or renew- renewable energy standards, and that means that utilities have to get a certain percentage of their electricity from renewable sources, wind, solar, uh, you know, geothermal, and anything like that. Nuclear doesn't count. So these laws have really kind of made a lot of utilities start turning to more renewable sources. It's doing great stuff. They're they're turning away from coal and towards clean energy. But Alec wants to get rid of those, and they've kind of set out a framework that would kind of uh, abolish these laws uh, at the state level. Secondly, they're working to make sure that the that the fracking companies can maintain uh, what's known as the the Halliburton loophole on state levels, which allows them to forego disclosing the chemical cocktails that they use uh, in their fracking operations when they blast chemicals into the uh, ground. The stuff they inject into these. Uh Pocket toxic. The so the, I mean, the biggest, most contentious issue about fracking is that the companies keep this stuff secret. They don't tell the public what they're blasting deep down uh, where it endangers uh, groundwater, where it could leach into, you know, into the water people drink and where it, uh, uh, you know, can cause real problems. A lot of times people just want to know what's in that. You know, this isn't a super partisan environmental issue. This is just people who live on farms or who live in rural, rural areas who want to get water from wells and they want to know what the hell is being drilled down in there. Companies, of course, have blocked it, and there's a lot of theorizing as to why. The, the companies say it's because of trade secrets, that, oh, we don't, they don't want you know, the other companies to know what magical elixir that they're blasting in there. But the truth seems to be that there's some toxic stuff in there that regulators would uh, take issue with. So Alec is working to keep those loopholes uh, alive and working to keep, keep these cocktails secret. 
Is Alec involved in the Tennessee classroom law? Yes, Alec was behind the the effort in Tennessee to allow public schools uh, to teach climate denial and creationism alongside evolution and actual climate science. Yeah, yeah. Alec created this law. Uh, at, at the behest of you know fossil fuel companies who have a real interest in keeping people confused about the basics of climate change. So they put this framework out there, and it was another model bill, and it's been introduced elsewhere, Louisiana, and, uh, and, and it's coming to uh, Virginia, I think. Uh, but yeah, it passed Tennessee. It's now been signed into law that public school teachers can teach opposing uh, I think the the keyword was alternate hypotheses mm-hmm. to climate science and to evolution, which are two of the most foundational sci- at this point scientific principles uh, out there. Yeah, I having lived in Tennessee for the last five years, I know that the education system there uh, it already has a hard enough time giving kids what they need, and I don't think this is. Well, a it's about step to get worse. It's about to get worse. A new study by MIT researchers looking at air pollution in the UK has found that 13,000 premature deaths each year come from the inhalation of tiny particles, particulate matter in the air. 7,500 of those deaths are considered to be from automobiles. And another roughly 6,000 Brits die from emissions produced outside of the country itself, so actually drifting across borders. Yeah, that happens. I mean, we see San Francisco started monitoring their air, and they started picking up uh, particulate matter that had drifted all the way over from Beijing, they believe, uh, from, from smog over in, in China. Yep. Yeah. The scientists estimate the financial loss from the premature deaths in the UK is between $9.6 and $99.5 billion. Fast food fans... You might feel a little bit better about your burgers. Burger King has decided to go cage-free with its chickens. We've been talking about chickens pretty often on the show. We have the arsenic Um, that they're getting injected with. Yeah, yeah. In this pledge, Burger King, which is the third largest fast food chain, said that by 2017 it will purchase only uncaged chickens and pigs that have not been confined to gestation crates. Wow. However, That's actually a pretty big move. Customers right? can still uh, opt to be in gestation crates if they so desire. <laughs> I think you have to be to, to eat at a fast food restaurant, you know. <laughs> um, I told you we'd talk about some uh, offshore renewable energy, and then later we'll get to the offshore not-so-renewable energy. The U.S. and the U.K. are teaming up to create some offshore floating wind farms. They've announced a collaboration on developing these, these turbines capable of sitting out in uh, deeper, deeper water. So the advantages being the further out you are, the better the wind is. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't have to pay all this money to dig footers, to dig foundations at the bottom of the right. ocean. Big- 500 feet and below, it gets a little dodgy. Right. So these things will actually float. England is ponying up $40 million bucks, and the U.S. has got about $180 million, some of which, not necessarily all of which, go to floating wind power systems. Great. Two years after the BP oil spill, we're getting our first criminal charges come in. This is very interesting. It's about time, huh? Yeah. Attorney General Eric Holder just this past week announced that Kurt Mix, who was an engineer for BP, was arrested on two counts of obstructing justice, intentionally destroying evidence relating to the Deepwater Horizon spill. 
five million barrels of oil out into the Gulf. So, and what he was doing was uh, deleting text messages, right? Because he got these texts from command that were telling him how bad the spill really was. And he thought that if he just deleted these texts, then he he wouldn't be responsible for going public or telling... Actually, I think it was that, the other way around. I think oh, it was really? him telling them. So so I'll go through the story here and, and we'll figure this out. So, okay, back in 2010, BP sent numerous notices to Mix requiring him to retain all information pertaining to the event. So they said, don't delete anything, supposedly, uh, including all these text messages. In October, BP told him they were going to start collecting info, including data from his phone. He then deleted roughly 200 text messages between himself and a BP supervisor. The communication was about how Topkill, which you'll remember was this effort to plug the leak up with heavy mud, was failing. At the time, BP determined that Topkill would only work if the flow rate was under 15,000 barrels of oil per day. In one of the deleted uh, messages that they actually reclaimed forensically after the fact, Mix said that the flow rate was over 15,000 barrels per day. Now, publicly, BP was estimating that the flow rate was 5,000, so he was basically lowballing. And, and they knew it. And Yeah, so if this guy's convicted, he could get a maximum penalty of 20 years and $250,000 fine for each count. So there are two counts. So that's right. half a million dollars. So that's the max. What we don't really know at this point is where BP was in all of this as far as what they right. knew. Because they would like to like, like to have us believe that he was some you know rogue operator who was just deleting stuff of his own accord because he, you know, he didn't want to look bad. He, you know, he's like, you know, the same story. Whenever this happens at a corporation this size, uh, a deed like this, that's always like, oh, you know, he was acting of his own accord. This was his plan. This is not BP policy. We're cool. Like, you know, we were really trying to be honest here. No one's really been held accountable. BP has paid out a lot of cash to in settlements, but that's, you know, that's that's a small part of the battle here. Yeah. Did you see Obama on Jimmy Kimmel this week? It was charming. It was charming. (laughs) He is a charming guy. He is a charmer. The thing that stood out to me the most, Kimmel asks him, and I love this question, if you had a magic wand and you could make anything happen policy-wise, you don't have to convince anyone, you don't have to lobby it, what would it be? And Obama starts talking. It's a little vague, but he the first thing on his mind is clean energy. And you've got a little more depth on... uh, Obama's commitments to energy in his uh, upcoming campaign. Right, yeah. Well, that campaign has already begun. It's here. Um, And he's definitely trying to tap into his base and into the youth vote. So he's doing things like showing up on Jimmy Kimmel, and he's giving interviews to Rolling Stone. And that interview with Rolling Stone is what I'm going to talk about here today, because as you guys are aware, for the last couple of years, Obama has been notoriously mum on climate. He hasn't said much. Uh, he, you know, gives State of the speech, Union, State no of the mention. Union, no mention, maybe one little cursory mention kind of lodged in between some other terminology. Uh, but to environmentalists and climate hawks and anyone else who's watching the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere and global temps both tick upwards, it's been maddening. It's like, where, where have you been, man? Like, give us some leadership on this issue. Uh, even if policy is at impossible because of the deadlock in Congress, keep, you know, this in the narrative. This is the most important thing that you could argue that humanity is facing right now is climate change. So let's just keep talking about it. So in this interview with Rolling Stone, 
uh, he seemed to break that silence. And he kind of at, at length and the most surprising part is unprompted. He wasn't asked point blank about climate, but he decided to talk about it anyways. And he, what he said was, frankly, I'm deeply concerned that internationally we have not made much progress on, on this issue. He says, blah, 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 blah. I've done what I can with renewable energy standards and energy efficiency gains and this kind of thing. But then he really gets into it and he says, part of the challenge over these past three years has been that people's number one priority is finding a job and paying the mortgage and dealing with high gas prices. And now, listen up, in that environment, it's been easy for the other side to pour millions of dollars into a campaign to debunk climate change science. I suspect that over the next six months, this is going to be a debate that will become part of the campaign, and I will be very clear in voicing my belief that we're going to have to take further steps to deal with climate change in a serious way. That that was the go-ahead. You know, that rose... Uh, a bunch of flags in the in the progressive community that's okay obama's back on climate he's going to be he's going to be taking our side again he's going to be start uh he's going to start fighting for this this issue that he's neglected for so long and there's a lot of debate you know in the environmental community over whether or not he actually will follow through or you know whether he's going to try to use this as a wedge issue to really kind of get at Romney and his base. Because, you know, Mitt Romney, over the course of the campaign, he had to go so far rightward to appease the Tea Party group that's really active in politics right now. So he had to go as far as to say, like, well, climate change, I'm not so sure about that. I don't know if it's even happening. Climate science is, is not settled. The classic line from years back about delaying action and in kind of tacitly appeasing the interests of the oil companies and fossil fuel companies. But polls are showing again that belief in climate change is on the rebound and people are increasingly connecting it, as we talked about last week, mm -hmm. to extreme weather and to these high temperatures that they're seeing. So people are connecting these issues and they know climate change is, in a sense, is kind of ripe for addressing in the political sphere because the majority of Americans all want to see something done on this. And specifically, they want to see more clean energy. Clean energy has pulled high since it, it kind of came into the to the national discourse in a big way a few years ago, and it still does. And it's one of those issues that, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to deny. It's hard to say, oh, who but, doesn't? But want how energy? do you feel about the fact that it's been such a silent thing for him for the last four years, and now he's coming back around to election time, and suddenly it seems to be in the front of his mind again? Doesn't that seem suspicious? Well, and that's what a lot of people say. Uh, but to me, I mean, if you're looking at this cold calculus just as, as politics, then, then no, it makes a lot of sense because climate is again in the news a little bit. It's, it's on people's minds and it's a time to address it. I wouldn't expect him to make any claims that he's going to try to do anything concrete to fix it. Mm -hmm. I think that he'll just start talking about it yeah. a little bit more. And that, that see, that's enough to separate him from it is from his opponents it is for him um, to take a firm stance and and describe what his opponents are doing as a calculated well-funded campaign to discredit right. the science that's a all he has to say is mitt romney is anti-science he doesn't believe the scientists 97 percent of scientists are saying this is a problem the american people knows it's a problem and mitt romney is is uh, is trying to cover up for big oil right and I think another thing that's important to keep in mind is that if you remember when he was elected, one of the first major legislative planks that came out was the climate bill. And Obama was behind it. He didn't 
you know, there's a lot of criticism about how he kind of guided that through Congress and how he dealt with it. But he was in he did endorse that effort fully and completely. And it tanked. And after it sunk, I think a lot of his political advisors were like, you know, this is a toxic issue. That was the same time that Climate Gate came out, that Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and the whole conservative media apparatus really kind of uh, solidified around their their climate denial and really started pumping that home. So they just they just backed off. And a lot of people have been saying for a long time that that was the wrong move entirely, that he should have countered and said, America wants clean energy, which they do, and America wants to solve climate change, which they do. Uh, And now maybe we'll hear a little bit uh, of that fight again. Is it just, you know, politics? Uh, Probably. I I don't know that Obama really, really cares all that much about climate as one of his central, yeah. you know, legacy issues. It was, <laughs> we made it through the whole show not talking about how it was Earth Day this past week, but it was. And uh, people who were watching TV on Earth Day, I don't know if necessarily that's the best thing to be doing on Earth Day. But if you were watching TV, hopefully or you were watching what were you doing something. I don't remember. Sleeping <laughs> with the lights off, not using any energy. People who are watching Discovery Channel may have seen the finale of the Frozen Planet series. And uh, so in conjunction with the BBC, they produced this very beautiful series. The last episode was called On Thin Ice, and it talks a whole bunch about the climate changing. And, of course, the scientific effects, the climate effects of climate change are magnified on the poles. Now, while they talked a whole lot about poles melting and the changes to animal habitats, et cetera, et cetera. They did not talk about human beings being a root cause of any of that change. And this became a very controversial issue. Now, although I alluded to it, full disclosure, Treehugger is a discovery communications company. So this was an intentional move on their part. The producer said that to keep the show from being controversial or turning off viewers, they wanted to keep that part out of it. Vanessa Berlowitz, who was a series producer, said in an interview that including scientific theories would, quote, have undermined the strength of an objective documentary and would then have become utilized by people with political agendas. Which is such BS because including science in a documentary about nature seems to be i mean there's nothing there's there's nothing controversial about the science first of all it's only about the politics that surround it the number as i mentioned even earlier this show the number of scientists that agree that human activity is causing the earth to warm is 97 to 98% that is a massive consensus that is at this point it's just entered into the annals of science this is this is what's happening more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is causing temperatures to warm and it's causing that beautiful arctic that was shown on this documentary to melt i i think whether or not you include this if you don't want to include any science at all and you just have pretty pictures of animals that's cool but this excuse to me really doesn't hold any water well we don't want to cause a controversy you know it's science it's it, it's it's fact yeah. you know the producer berlowitz also said that i feel like we're trying to educate mass audiences and get children involved and we didn't want people saying don't watch this show because it has a slant on climate change that's right they they want ratings that's this is just code for saying we want ratings but really so this is more than anything a story about how the 
campaign to make this a controversial issue has been successful, that they have made it such a hot topic, hot potato issue that a major network will dodge this, not because they don't believe it, but because they don't want to become a controversial subject. They don't want to turn anybody off. They don't want conservative moms and dads saying changing the channel because they hear something that they identify as a certain side of political rhetoric. They did a cost-benefit analysis, and they decided that they would attract more viewers if they didn't mention uh, the human ties to climate change because there are, you know, because the issue has been politicized, as you said. I flew the red eye back from L.A. last night and obviously not doing my part to keep my carbon footprint low, but I was watching this, uh, I was watching part of the Discovery documentary, which is narrated by Alec Baldwin, and then I flipped the channel over to National Geographic, and there was another documentary also narrated by Alec Baldwin. He's cornering Uh, the market. But this was the Six Degrees, I think they call it, series, which is all about very specifically the human impact on the climate, and there's James Hansen as sort of a centerpiece NASA climatologist, and one of the most scientifically and policy outspoken professionals in the field uh, has been arrested doing direct action around the subject. And and so it was so interesting to see Discovery and National Geographic, two heavy hitters, approaching it so differently on on just adjacent channels. So while Jacob was slumbering on Earth Day uh, and lowering his carbon footprint, uh, I guess hibernation is one of the greenest things that you can do. Uh, Thank you for that. That's very generous of you. Well, I was out and about uh, following around Occupy Wall Street, which staged a number of Earth Day events. And a lot of Earth Day organizers have said that uh, that Earth Day has uh, been overly commercialized and sort of neutered. And it's, you know, and to some degree it has. You know, the official New York City Earth Day festival was at uh, Grand Central Station, and it had companies like Toshiba and Con Ed and Bridgestone all presenting talks about why organic food is good, which is a nice thing, but it's also quite a departure from the activist grassroots uh, action that birthed Earth Day in the first place decades ago. A lot of people forget that the first Earth Day was a truly momentous affair. There were millions, uh, I think 10 million Americans, out in the streets on the first Earth Day, and it was, you know, uh, not not a kumbaya by cliff bar sort of event. It was a let's organize and call for action because we have a spill, an oil spill in Santa Barbara, a river on fire in Ohio, and things have got to change. You know, if you ask me, that's where we should be right now. Uh, the oil spill that preceded the first Earth Day was teeny, 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 tiny compared to the Gulf spill. And not a whole lot of people are out in the streets here. So I went and I saw Occupy and they did a couple actions. One was a melt-in at uh, that Grand Central Station Earth Day Festival that I mentioned. And they just kind of disrupted it and and made some chanting and kind of drew the attention of the police. And it was a nice, it was a good little grassroots event. But then the next day they did something they called the Jazz Funeral for the death of Earth as we know it. Wow. Which was all tongue-in-cheek, and it was super funny. 
there was a jazz band there. It got the tuba and they had a marching drum and they had a, a trumpet. And so they basically played a dirge for the earth as they marched. And it was, you know, it was, it was supposed to be funny. People were dressed up and it was a lively, colorful affair uh, that marched up from the BP gas station down on uh, Houston Street up to Union Square. And, you know, it was good. 50 people, maybe more, attended and, and definitely turned some heads. And even though it wasn't the sort of massive uh, marching and, you know, crazy uh, taking over Times Square and all the stuff that we saw last year from Occupy, it was getting the ball rolling in the right direction. These sort with, of grassroots... With, with jazz. With jazz. With jazz to boot. Uh, these kind of things are what we really need to see more. We need to see more of these spontaneous you know, grassroots level actions that highlight this kind of thing uh, that comes straight from, from the populace. We've got to really kind of tap into that activist spirit again. And folks like Bill McKibben and his Tar Sands Action Campaign have done a great job uh, of doing this, but we really, we really got to regroup. And I think that Occupy on Earth Day sort of, uh, you know, lit that spark again. And it was, it was good to see some of that, even if it wasn't the revolutionary kind of action that that we would uh, like to see no that's great okay so you were enthusiastic i didn't know if you uh i didn't know how you walked away feeling about it all i felt like it was a good start it it was encouraging it was fun i was fun it was fun i was glad to be in the streets it was pouring rain that probably helped keep the turnout relatively small but it was it was it was fun it was fun you know i'd do it again um folks we actually have some bad news and uh, I'll save my nostalgic rant for another time. But uh, there are a whole bunch of changes going on at Treehugger right now. A lot of the writers that you are familiar seeing, you will be seeing less of. Some you won't be seeing at all. And actually, Treehugger Radio is pretty much done, I'm afraid. We're approaching the end. We've got a couple more episodes. And then after that, it will be the end of Treehugger Radio as we know it likely the end of Treehugger Radio altogether. So, well, it's not because we don't like doing it. It's because the funding got cut. Let's make that clear. You know? It's not because we don't like everybody, all of you out there. or Which, uh, you know, I've, I'm pretty new to this game, but I have been uh, totally encouraged and grateful to get all the response from you guys. You guys have been sending us emails and leaving us comments and tweets and whatnot, and the, the response has just been great. Um so as 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 the new guy and soon to be ex new guy uh thanks for all that uh but yeah we tune in for the next few and maybe we'll see if we can uh, get something going from there yeah we'll talk about it more in a couple of weeks but until then have a great week and stay tuned to tree hugger and we'll talk to you guys soon cheers bye guys